Tonight's show is brought to you by the Spirit of Adventure, Bendetti Optics, and you, our listeners. We don't know what happened to the aliens. I can tell you what happened to the aliens. I know now. They, like, hung around. They headed back into town at Roswell, and they franchised a McDonald's. is up all of you wayward souls and welcome back to the wayward stories podcast wayward stories is the podcast where we tell the stories of our adventures in wandering and wondering y'all have we got an episode tonight we're going to get into that but before we get there how are you guys doing tonight how was your Thanksgiving? As you listen to this, Thanksgiving was just a few short days ago. And it was for me, actually. I'm recording pretty much right on the uh, cusp of having to drop this episode this week. Like, um, got a little bit ahead of production for a while there, but that is no longer the case. And these are hot and ready. This guy is coming piping hot out of the oven for you guys to enjoy. But I hope that you all had a good Thanksgiving. I had an excellent Thanksgiving, and you guys are about to hear about it. My Thanksgiving may have been a little bit more unorthodox compared to many of yours. If you guys enjoyed the traditional turkey and dressing and all those things, which are quite wonderful, um, I hope you enjoyed that. But mine, mine looked a little bit different than that. And it's going to make an absolutely great story um, for you guys to hear about tonight. This one, this one fits right into the wheelhouse of what Wayward Stories is all about. Why is that? Okay. I've told you guys many times, and I'm going to do a little short recap right here, because we got a lot of new listeners, guys. We're still picking people up from the um, Ozarks Rec show, and also, I might, I have been picking up quite a few listeners just over the last few days, and I suspect many of you happened across a rack card or a small flyer on the gas pumps across the southwest or at the... Uh, the checkout at the register of many little um, truck stops along the way. Because um, my listens have spiked over the last few days. And I think that that you know, may have something to do with the fact that I papered the Southwest with, uh, hey, listen to Wayward Stories podcast flyers. Um, so anyway, I'd like to welcome you all aboard. But yeah, that's why does tonight fit? What is Wayward Stories all about? And why is tonight a perfect story? Well, as many of you that are longtime listeners know, you know, I took a whole new approach to life after um, the very abrupt and rude restructuring of everything I knew in the world. It's quite traumatic. I'm getting close to five years ago now. And I've talked to you guys many times. We do this every year about this time that when we get around to the holidays, I'm not going to sit around and get depressed because I have no family to spend it with. Okay. Like it started out maybe out of self-preservation, but now it has become just a tradition that I look forward to every year. And personally, I enjoy it more than all of those Thanksgivings with uh, different families and stuff of the years past. I mean, I'm just being real with you guys. This is a much more enjoyable tradition than things that I've done in the past. But what is that tradition? My tradition is to stave off sitting at home and becoming very depressed. I go on an adventure. And I find somewhere new to go. If I can afford a big one, I'll take a big one. If I can't afford a big one, I'll take a small one. Last year, it was uh, hiking at Rush. That was actually over Christmas. What did I do at Thanksgiving last year? Anyway, around it, it just seems unfair to me to keep my daughter for myself. 
you know, when you when you have a divorce and you've got your um, custody stuff lined out, you know, everyone gets a holiday. It swaps back and forth. But like, I don't have any family and it seems like it would be really selfish and like in my daughter's, not in my daughter's best interest to be like, no, this is mine. You've got to stay with me. And then I sit here and, you know, have some cruddy turkey that I've tried to cook because I've never cooked a turkey in my life and like watch TV. Or she could go with her mama and go spend time with all of her cousins and aunts and uncles that she loves and eat turkey. And like, it just seems like it'd be pretty crappy of me. Um, and not in her best interest. So I'm like, you know what? The holidays are yours because I've got no one to take her and spend time with. So we'll work that out elsewhere. I'll get her some other time. You know, we'll trade it up. We'll keep it even. But there's no reason for me to keep her. And, you know, that would just be really depressing for her. She'd be missing out on a lot. And that seems selfish. So those first couple of Thanksgivings or Thanksgiving and Christmas that first year, that was kind of kind of like I was like, you know what? This is going to be rough. I don't know if I can handle this. And I don't remember what I even did that first year, but I did something. I got out of the house and it's just become a tradition for me to do. So my Thanksgiving is going to look a little bit unorthodox to you guys. And what was all that about? What was that tangent for? Well, that's what Wayward Stories is all about. That's where this podcast came from. This is me putting my life on display for all of you out there and all of you people that that sit at home and, and don't get out and do anything. And maybe you've been through some terrible stuff and it's it's taking away your zeal and your lust for life. You know, like this is just me showing you guys like, yo, this kind of crappy crap happened to me too. Um, I've been through some things just like you, but guess what? Like, this is not the end of our lives. This is the beginning. This is like a chance to reset, man. You get like a clean slate in a lot of ways. You know, it's all in how you look at it. You know, they say life doesn't define us. Life absolutely defines us. Circumstance absolutely defines us. I will argue that forever and ever and ever and ever. But there's a key. We get to choose how it's going to define us. You can take the crappy thing and be like, oh, that's it for me. Life's over. Or you can take the crappy thing and go, you know what? F that crappy thing. Here's my big middle finger to the world. You're not going to hold me down. I'm going to go have a better life. So screw you. And that's what it's all about. And that's what Wayward Stories is all about. Rebuilding your life, finding healing, getting out, living, and just exploring the world. That's what we're here to do. So what did I do? over my Thanksgiving that I'm so giddy about and so excited about? Well, I went and I explored the mountains of Southern New Mexico. Y'all, y'all, it was an absolutely awesome trip. These mountains that I went to explore and also the basins that were around, but the mountains are actually the Sierra Madre mountains. Um, really the northernmost end of the Sierra Madres, um, that comes up through New Mexico, and it kind of ends right there just south of central New Mexico. And then a little ways up the way, the Rockies kind of pick up, and that's the southernmost tip of the Rockies. So I was kind of in the northern reaches of the Sierra Madre Mountains. Now, why did I choose this area? Like, there's a lot of reasons, and I'm not going to go into it and waste a lot of you guys' time. But I was looking for a place to go. You guys know me. I love the desert southwest. I mean, honestly, what I was going to do is I was going to go to Bryce Canyon, okay? I've always like in my mind, I've been like, yo, Bryce Canyon, Arches, all those awesome places in Utah. I got to go do that at some point. But when am I ever going to have enough time in my mind? It's something I was going to have to do down the road, um, you know, in life, a few years out, whatever. Things are going to have to change a little bit. But this Thanksgiving rolled around and the way it worked out and I happened to have PTO for a change. I wasn't working for FedEx, y'all. It wasn't for the first time in my life. I'm not working for or my life in the last five years, I'm not working for big purple and having like a hell life right now. 
Because basically the first week in November to the first week of January, your life comes to an end and you work a billion hours a day for not enough money. And everyone out there hates you, even though you're bringing them the things that they want and they ordered for some reason, they are unhappy. No matter what, even if it shows up on time in perfect condition, doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with the fact that you're bringing them stuff they want. It's just like you're a human face in their world and they're miserable about everything else in the world. I don't know, but it was just a thing. It's how it always was. But for the first time ever, I'm not having to do that. And I actually had PTO at work. Y'all, y'all, that's like a whole new thing. So I was like, yo, what if I took the day off before? And that could have me like four or five total days for an adventure. And what if I just say, to hell with it, your birthday's on Monday anyway. Yeah, as y'all are listening to this, my birthday was yesterday. Big whopping 42, y'all. I'm getting on up though, but I'm not going to let it kill me. I'm just not ready to go yet, y'all. Death is not around the corner, at least I hope. Um, so anyway, I was like, if I'm going to have my birthday, I got Thanksgiving. It's time for that traditional adventure anyway. Well, let's go for, let's go with a gusto, baby. Let's go. Let's go somewhere. So I started looking. I was like, yo, Bryce Canyon with that many days? That's possibility. Bryce Canyon and, oh gosh, um, Monument Valley and Glen Canyon. Y'all, we're going to, I've got to get there before. And who knows, the drought may last for the rest of our natural lives, but it also may rain 100 million gallons this winter um, and fill up Glen Canyon again. But y'all, Glen Canyon, they're calling it America's Lost National Park. For any of you out there listening, Consider trying to get to Glen Canyon before they fill that lake back up. If they ever get enough rain to start refilling Glen Canyon, try to get to Glen Canyon before it's flooded again. Like there's actually a whole movement now trying to stop the refilling refilling of Glen Canyon should there ever be more rain. I think they're calling it the Fill Lake Mead First movement um, instead of Lake Powell, which is the one in Glen Canyon. Um, because apparently the scenery and the valleys and the... Oh, the canyons that have been exposed that have been underwater since the sixties are just mind blowing. But anyway, I was like, yo, that's a possibility. So I started looking into it, start trying to plan it out, start trying to, okay, if I go this far on day one, I can get to here and then I could do this on day two, day three, whatever. I was trying to plan it out, starting to put together the tentative preliminary plans. And then I checked the 10 day forecast and I was like, yo, it's going to be negative 1 trillion degrees there. That Typically, cold doesn't bother me that much, but I'm just like, yo, that might make for a really miserable five or six days, as cold as it's supposed to be there. So I was like, okay, okay, well, you know what? That was going to be a little bit of a stretch anyway. That's a long, stinking way. It's a lot of hours driving. What is a little bit closer? And I just started looking, started looking around. And what I came up with was New Mexico and southern New Mexico, down around Las Cruces, um, I was like, yo, there's a whole lot of stuff to do here. You're only like 40 minutes, 45 minutes north of El Paso. You're way down there. But there's a lot of stuff within a few hour radius of Las Cruces that's really awesome. And for me, the anthropology nerd, the history nerd, I was like, yo, we got some freaking ancient cliff dwellings. We've got got the history of, I mean, down there in the Tularosa Basin, y'all, White Sands Missile Range, that's where we... um. Uh, the Trinity site where we tested the first nuclear weapon and brought death to the world on a massive scale. Um, the White Sands missile range, like there's the German V2 rocket launch sites where we tested and kind of reversed engineered the German V2 rockets that we captured in World War II. And y'all, 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 history for days, 
stagecoaches, mining towns, all of the awesome Old West things set in absolutely gorgeous mountains that are just reminiscent. I know many, many of you have been through the Rockies, if not down in the Sierra Madres. So for the rest of us that have only been, you know, and seen the Rockies at some point in our life, everyone's gone to Pikes Peak or whatever, you know, it's, it's like that. It feels like it. It feels like it. It's freaking amazing. So anyway, I said, mind, I was like, that's not that many hours drive. That would give me the maximum number of hours to accomplish the maximum number of things and explore that area. So that's what I did. I set out to go and do this thing. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight is the story of the many adventures I've taken over the last four or five days. And let me tell you guys something. I rolled in yesterday evening pretty late. Oh gosh, I was about to yawn. Did you hear that coming on? I was able to stave it off. Um, After like five days of just going with my hair on fire from the butt crack of dawn to way past the butt crack of evening, and um, I'm looking worse for the wear. Any of y'all looking, watching the YouTube, man, I'm, I look it. I look like I've been through it because I have. It has been a heck of a journey, but to me, this is living life. This is what it's all about. Out there by the seat of your pants, all the hours, burning the midnight oil to explore and adventure and find everything that I could possibly find to get into that could both excite and soothe my soul. Y'all, that's what this what this is all about. That's what Wayward Stories is all about. And I've got the perfect story to share with you guys tonight. So we're going to get into it. It's going to be kind of a travelogue, honestly. I'm going to tell you day by day. What I did, and I will expound and elucidate on all the different little things as they come up here, but we're just going to get started and basically start with day one. The way I like to travel, I like to use the last day of work that I have to work. I like to use all the hours until like maybe midnight, as late as midnight, if I can, to get started on a long journey somewhere. Because basically you get off work and you buy yourself a whole half a day if you're willing to go drive six or seven hours right after work and, and shack up at a cruddy little hotel room somewhere. Or if you're fancy and bougie and have a lot of money, somewhere really nice. But you know, you're basically, for me, I'm like, yo, I'm just sleeping here for like six hours and then I'm on the road again. It's it's more functional. It's more of a practical decision. Eat up hours on the journey before the journey even really starts. And it's kind of a jump start. It's kind of a way of getting a jump start. You just have to pack ahead of time, which is what I do. Get ready to go, get everything packed a couple of nights before, get the get the trip plan laid out, which for me is simple. We've talked about this before. It's kind of how I like to roll. I know when I'm starting, I know when I'm ending, and I'll have some like pins dropped in there randomly. Like, okay, a few of the pins are going to be, I know I want to do this. I know I want to do this. I know I want to do this. Or maybe three or four things you identify, have to see those and everything else is an adventure. And also, okay, it's going to take me this many hours to drive to where I'm going. So this gives me this many hours in each day for whatever. And you kind of just have a few little broad ranging ideas, but essentially for me, it's pretty simple. Make sure I hit these things that I want to hit at some point in this trip and let's go, baby. Let's freaking go. And that's part of of the love of the trip for me, guys. And I think that's what resonates about this show with so many of you and why so many of you are listening now is because it's like, it's almost like controlled um, adventure in a way. It's like, okay, I'm a grown up. I have a job. I have a child. I have responsibilities. I have all these things, but I still crave adventure. I still crave new experiences. So if I can just set my window 
responsibly. Here's the window of time I have to be have to go be irresponsible. That's what it is. We're just setting parameters for irresponsibility. Okay, I've got three days, four days, five days, one day to be irresponsible and just go live by the seat of my pants and eat junk food or whatever the hell I find at a truck stop along the way. That's what it's all about. Just going out and living, man, and experiencing it. So I set my window for responsibility and from that or irresponsibility. And from that point forward, it's like, well, let's just see what happens. Who knows? I might end up on the side of the mountain asleep in the trunk of my car tonight. I don't know. Don't really care. That'll just make for an even better story to tell later. It's all a part of the adventure, right? So that that right there is kind of how all of my journeys begin. It's like, here's my window and let's go. So what I did is I left. And I got out on the road after work. And my goal is always, if I'm heading west, I live in Fort Smith, Arkansas. If I'm heading west after work, even if I get off at five or even six o'clock, which isn't best case scenario, it's only six and a half hours to Amarillo, down to Amarillo, right? If I can make Amarillo by morning, then I know I've got a huge chunk of my drive out of the way. And for me, when I'm heading west, at least, I've got the biggest chunk of the ugly part of my drive out of the way. You know, I grew up in Oklahoma. No offense, you Oklahomans. I'm very proudly a native of Oklahoma. I love my home state. But once you get on towards Oklahoma City, from Oklahoma City on to the Texas border, it's just, there's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. I mean, it's almost worse than Kansas because at least in Kansas, you got wheat fields, right? This is more like dusty nothing. And then there's more of it. You get into Texas and it's like, oh, look, just more Oklahoma until you get to roughly the other side of the Texas panhandle and you cross into New Mexico. And when you cross into New Mexico, it's almost like someone turns a, you know, flips a switch. It's like suddenly, oh, look, there's a mesa in the distance. And, you know, it's not like immediately just awe inspiring, but it gets way more interesting almost as soon as you hit the state line. You see mesas in the distance, you know, it starts to really become deserty desert. You start getting attacked by tumbleweeds at high speeds going down the interstate. So for me, if I can get all of the western half of Oklahoma and a good chunk of half of the Texas panhandle out of the way after dark, you know, when I can just chill and turn on a podcast that I want to listen to, like one of my favorite shows out there, and just cruise through the night. Like, just like the old days, man, I think of them over the road and long haul truck drivers out there driving through the night, burning the rubber off those tires, listening to AM radio. Like, I love listening to the podcast that I enjoy to listen to while I'm out there just cruising in the night. And that alone is a very um, soothing and enjoyable experience for me. Um, so if I can get that out of the way, then, you know, I've got a big jump start. I'm, I'm, I'm cooking with fire at that point, right? So that's what I did. Rolled on to Emerio and got put up by fairly early because I actually took a couple hours off early the day that I left because I still had a little extra PTO in addition to the day I was taking. It's like, well, let's get out of here at two o'clock. Why not? Let's go. So I did that. Got to Emerio at a decent hour. Set out at a decent hour and found out relatively quickly because usually I'm still kicking down 40, right? If I'm heading towards the west. Well, in this particular case, the fastest way to Las Cruces and where I was going Happened to go very near Roswell, New Mexico. And I was like, I have to go to Roswell because I love all kinds of weird stuff, y'all. It's Roswell. I mean, even if you're not into weird stuff, that's just pop culture famous Roswell. The famous, famous UFO incident in Roswell, New Mexico. And they got a lot of cool stuff there. 
y'all, they have a lot of cool stuff there. So I was like, we're going to go to Roswell first. We're going to kick it down. And you come out of Amarillo a little bit south, and then you just start winding across the Texas panhandle and uh, basically eastern New Mexico. And it turns out that eastern New Mexico, south of 40, is just more Texas. And Texas is just more of western Oklahoma. And it was like the first six hours of the drive the next morning. I was like, yo, this sucks. I'm ready for this to be over with. Because I personally enjoy driving through the gorgeous mountains of New Mexico. But towards the southerly end of it, ain't a lot there. It's just a lot more Texas. Again, which is just a lot more Oklahoma. So anyway, I get on down though to Roswell. And I go check out Roswell. Get my picture. You know, your obligatory picture at the uh, Welcome to Roswell sign, which is pretty famous at this point. Like everyone's got to have their selfie there or whatever. So I went and did that, took pictures of that, ate dinner um, or ate lunch there in Roswell and stopped by the McDonald's. Okay. See, everyone's always wondered, you know, there's the the famous tapes of the um, alien autopsy. These were supposedly the aliens that were found at the famous crash at Roswell. Um, but nobody really knows. They're like, where are the aliens at? You know? We don't know what happened to the aliens. I can tell you what happened to the aliens. I know now. They like hung around. They headed back into town at Roswell and they franchised a McDonald's. Y'all, I mean, it's literally a spaceship. It's a McDonald's with a spaceship on the end of it. And there's even a couple of life-size aliens standing outside pointing at the McDonald's sign. Like, that's what happened. They're still around. They're right there in Roswell. They've just kind of integrated into the community. I guess everyone just kind of accept, accepted them. And, you know, they just moved on with life down there. But it was pretty cool. Roswell's really cool. It was a pass-through for me because it was a drive day to where I was actually going. So I didn't get to stop and spend a ton of time in Roswell. But Roswell looks like a really cool place altogether. And there's a lot of stuff going there. A good friend of mine goes by a king of space on... um. Gosh, is he still on Instagram? He's following me on TikTok now. But Lyle, my boy Lyle, from way back in the day, one of the producers of On the Fringe, he sent me a message and was or commented on one of my photos. And he was saying that the Roswell Motor Speedway out there, like their dragway or whatever, is on part of the old Army airfield. And the hangars, the foundations of the hangars where what, whatever crashed in Roswell, let me remind you, something really did crash in Roswell. Of course, they said it was a weather balloon. Other people refute that, whatever, but whatever did crash there was taking, taken to a hangar right there. And so you can actually kind of visit some of the areas where some of that really, really infamous stuff happened. And, you know, I didn't know that at the time, but I do now, but there's a lot of interesting stuff going on around Roswell. So passing on through Roswell, heading on down the road, man, because I've got time to make, there's other stuff to do. You know, I try to milk every moment out of these adventures when they come because they are few and far between these large ones. Y'all, it's been almost two years since I've gotten to take a big adventure. That was one of the things I set out to do. I was still with Big Purple back then, and you only get one week of vacation a year, no matter how many years you've been there. It's like the only benefit you get working at Big Purple. And I was like, I've never gotten to, I've never earned a vacation in my entire life from any job I've ever had. That's being uneducated in America, right? You just don't get to have good jobs where you get vacations. I mean, some people do, but in total, not really. If you're on the low end of the food chain and the blue collar workforce, there aren't a lot of benefits available. But anyway, I did get a week and I was like, from now on, I don't care how hell or high water, I'm taking an adventure. I'm taking a vacation. I finally earned one and I'm going to take it. And year one, I got, went to Chattanooga, picked up my boy, Jason, my best friend in the whole world, my brother. And we drove up into 
the Great Smoky Mountains and camped and fished our way down through their hammock camped and fished our way through the Smokies. There's an episode about, about that. If you go back through the back catalog, you can find it pretty good ways ago, probably in the first 12, 15 episodes, somewhere in there. Um, and gosh, we're at episode 58 tonight, aren't we? That's awesome. That's awesome. We're really getting some stuff put together, guys. I love it. But anyway, did that year one. Year two, go to Colorado, went and explored around Buena Vista. There's an episode about that, exploring central Colorado. That was an awesome trip. Stuff left on the table there that I still have to go back and do someday. It's Central Colorado is just awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, But the last year to two years, my little trippy trip, big trip for the year didn't work out. So this year I was like, yo, the window just opened. Look, I don't have, it's not even my weekend with my daughter. So this just works out where I've got like four days at least. And let's make this happen. So anyway, my point is these big adventures for me are kind of can be few and far between. You know, it's a special treat. So you got to milk every second out of it. So Roswell was just a blip that I passed through, got the obligatory picture and just kept on rocking. And then I'll tell you what, at this point on, wasn't much further past Roswell that it starts to become an adventure more so than just a drive. I was getting a little frustrated with the driving part of it because I was like, man, I was ready for some adventure today early and it did not turn into that yet because I've never driven through this part of New Mexico. Not far, not too long beyond Roswell, it starts to become more like really feeling like you're in another place and you're going to do an actual thing. Does that make sense? And you get to drive up through um, the Sacramento Mountains. And that's when it starts to get to be a lot of fun. Going through the Sacramento Mountains. out You know, you get out of Roswell. You're still heading west. You're heading for basically the Tularosa Basin. You're heading for White Sands. You're heading for Alamogordo. But I've still got further to go, right? Because on the other side of that is another mountain range. And that's where I'm going to go down and find Las Cruces, right? But the first thing you meet coming across the eastern half of New Mexico such as this is the Sacramento Mountains. And there's a couple of places up there, something I'd never heard of, uh, Ruidoso Downs, which is apparently a big horse racing deal. Like they got like a whole resort thing going on up there. But the point is, is it's absolutely gorgeous. For all of you out there that are always looking for new places to go travel and adventure, this wouldn't be a good, bad place to go check out. Because some people, you know, are a little bit more on the bougie end of things. A lot of people like to go and like hang out at, say, ski resorts in Colorado. A lot of people like to go to the really fancy ski resorts in Colorado, and they kind of live a little bit higher lifestyle. That's fine. Not for me. You know, it's not necessarily my thing, but that's fine. But if you're one of those folks, like, hey, this Ruidoso Downs area, if you don't already know about it, y'all, it's beautiful mountains, just like Colorado. Be a little bit of a change of scenery because it's a different set of mountains. They've got horse racing. They got casinos. They got all the things down there that a lot of people really, really enjoy. And it was gorgeous. At this point is where my drive, the drive over started to become really, really beautiful. And let me tell you something from that moment forward through the whole rest of the trip, everywhere I drove was absolutely freaking gorgeous until I got back to the Texas panhandle on the way home four days later, Southern New Mexico, absolutely gorgeous. All of those mountain ranges are amazing. Um, and this is, we're still in day one. So I get across the Sacramento mountains And I'm trying to decide, right? I got multiple things that I've already kind of lined out that I know I want to do. I know I want to do White Sands at some point. I know I want to go to the Gila Cliff Dwellings at some point. I know I want to go to the Three Rivers or the Tres Rios Petroglyph site because it's a really, really cool petroglyph site right over in that area. So I had all these things and I wasn't sure exactly how it was all going to play out. And it kind of made the trip really interesting because the whole 
like kind of the biggest overarching theme of this whole trip is there was not enough time for everything. Like no matter how hard I went, there wasn't enough time for everything. I mean, it ran me ragged, but I decided because I was real close to it right there on day one, I was like, I could knock this out day one. Let me get up to the three rivers petroglyph site. It's, it's just a quick jaunt up the next interstate. Once we cross the Sacramento mountains, before I head down through Alamogordo and finish out the rest of the drive that night, it's just a quick hop, skip and a jump up the road. So let's go do that. The Trace Rios or Three Rivers Petroglyph site, y'all, if you're into nerdy history like me at all, you guys like, you know me, history nerd, anthropology nerd, the Three Rivers Petroglyph site is super, super special petroglyph site for multiple reasons. One is it's not super hard to access. You can drive right up to the trailhead on a pretty dang good road for most of the way. And then it's like a one mile hike up to this, you know, basalt rock ridge. And it just kind of juts up from the landscape. And along this basaltic rock ridge, there are over 21,000 petroglyphs. And they are gorgeous. And many of them are still super, super clear. Like just depending on how deeply they were etched originally, probably even the age of them. Because these were made by an ancient peoples called the Mughalin people that was actually, this was new to me. You guys know I love Native American indigenous history. I know a decent bit. I'm into my third year of anthropology on, you know, and this has not become actually the focus yet of what I'm working on. But these are things I'm personally interested in. So in my personal research over the years, the Mughal and people just kind of, I just missed them. They just flew under my radar. So I learned something whole and new or wholly new in this trip. And it was awesome. They flourished from like 400 CE to about, what was it? 13 to 1400 CE. So they kind of a thousand year window there. Some of these carvings are from the early end of that 200 to 400 CE. And some of them are from the later up to 11, 12, 13, 1400 CE. But y'all, they, some of them are so clear. And this is the thing, the nerd in me, okay. The history nerd in me loves this kind of stuff. These petroglyphs, when you go and you lay eyes in, in this case, your hands, you just walk right through this. You lay your hands on one of those. You're literally touching the surface that somebody touched. I mean, what are we talking about here? 400 now, 1600 years ago, there's like a very real very palpable, at least for me. Maybe it's because I've got a great imagination. I don't know. But there is such a real human connection to a people from freaking 1600 years ago. You can almost, if you can let your imagination wander, you can almost see it. You're standing in the same place, like your feet are on the same earth, looking at the same rock face. In a way, it is a time machine. You step back in time. And your hands are on the same surface as the maker of that incredibly detailed and awesome looking bighorn sheep with like three arrows sticking out of its side. Those pictures give you a, a glimpse, a window into the mind of ancient people 1600 years ago, indigenous peoples into their life, how they lived, what it was all about and what it must have been like for them. And when you can do that, you start to understand how we all are all are humans. And how would you react if you lived in that kind of time frame? How would you survive? What would it be like? And you start looking at the phone in your pocket that you're taking pictures of the damn petroglyphs with. And it's like, wow, wow, what a contrast. Wow. Like that kind of stuff. There's, there's connections 
in humanity that occur. That to me is the value of anthropology and archaeology and history, y'all. That is like applied anthropology is when you can make a connection to the peoples that did a thing, at least mentally, and kind of recognize where they, who they were, where they were coming from, what they were all about. And then you can start to see the evolution of our species in a societal way to who we've become today. And there's something really, really, really valuable about that. To me, I mean, there's a lot of things valuable, valuable about that. And one of them is just simply appreciation for what things are like now compared to how things were then. Anyway, around it, I will save you guys any further nerding out on my part, at least for this portion of the episode, because we're going to get probably back into that again here in a little while. But it was a really, really cool thing to check out. You guys, if you're ever down there in the area, if you are interested at all in Native American rock art, in petroglyphs, in in ancient cultures, the Tres Rios petroglyph site north of Alamogordo in White Sands, y'all, it is an awesome place to check out. It's one of the most extensive and important petroglyph sites in the world with over 21,000 petroglyphs. You could explore all freaking day there and just find all of these amazing representations of themselves, of their ceremonial mask, of the animals they hunted. It is a view into their mind and into their world, y'all. It, it, it's an awesome place. Awesome place I never even knew existed until I took this trip which is another reason I think travel and adventure is so stinking important because it broadens everyone's horizons. Like we learn, we become broader. Our intelligence base becomes broader. Every time we go out and see something new, learn something new. I just think that's good for like humanity in general. Personally, that's just my personal point of view. Anyway, wrapping up on the petroglyph site, the rest of the drive was literally right at sunset. Okay. Across the Tularosa Basin, you go past White Sands, go up over the, hold on, wait for it. Let me look and make sure which mountains we're going through. The San Andres Mountains, not San Andreas, like the fault, but San Andres Mountains. And that is how you get over from Tularosa Basin, just south of White Sands. Well, actually, it depends what you're calling White Sands. The whole damn area, there's a huge area called White Sands. There's the White Sands Missile Range. But then there's an also a portion of it that's actually the National Monument that you can go and explore and see all this amazing white sand for yourself. But either way, you cross over the San Andres Mountains over down back into um, Las Cruces, which is where I'm staying the night, right? That drive, again, y'all, when you go on adventures like this, don't ever sleep on this. You pick a really scenic area to go on an adventure the crappy part of adventures, which is usually the driving part to a lot of people. I personally love driving. That's just part of who I am. It soothes my soul. I get to listen to whatever I like to listen to. I can get in my own little world and work out life problems in my head. I personally love driving and seeing countryside, but for a lot of people, they hate that part of it. If you pick a good area, y'all, the drives themselves are just as much a part of the adventure of the getaway of the vacation, whatever you want to call it, the drives themselves can just be absolutely entertaining in their own right because of how beautiful they are. And this is this right here, this whole area, that was the case. Cruising across the San Andres Mountains with sunset going down. And I mean, all you see is these silhouetted jagged mountain peaks jutting up from the basin, which is just flat 
upper high desert wastelands, basically, and these huge jagged mountains jut straight up, and you've got sunset happening. The oranges, the purples, the blues, all the, the reds, all the colors in the sky glistening and playing along the tops of these peaks and you've got all these clouds because you're in the high desert right there's a whole lot going on with um the weather and with the atmosphere and you've got like these clouds that are making like cap shapes over the top of these mountains um it's just fascinating it was beautiful absolutely beautiful drive to get over to las cruces so i get to las cruces get put up you know go in get the the room lined out i stayed in a really cool little motel had a very, very Route 66 vibe, even though it wasn't on Route 66. Um, that's how the world, colloquial, like the pop culture world and Americana views these kinds of hotels as a Route 66 thing. Because it's kind of what made them famous, but it's really a Southwest thing. It's bigger than just Route 66. It's the whole Southwest. So I stayed in a really cool little hotel. It's called the Royal Host in Las Cruces. And the woman there was just the sweetest lady. She was awesome host. And I don't know. Anyway. Consider it. If you ever find yourself taking an adventure like I did, go down there and talk to them at the Royal Host. They're just awesome, awesome host. But I asked her, right? I'm standing there getting everything figured out and go in there and put up for the night. I'm like, okay, here in Las Cruces, where do I have to eat? You know, I always want to eat the local stuff. You guys always eat the local fare, okay? Always eat the local fare. Um, and I was like, so where, where, where is some place? If, if you're talking to a complete outsider, never doesn't know anything about the area, what is the one place or two places that you're like, oh, if you're here, you have to go over there. And she was like, oh, that's easy. Right out here, take a right, take a left, go down the road just a half a mile, two miles, and you're in Old Messia. In Old Messia, there was a place called La Posta de Messia. And they have amazing food and they have a ton of history in this building so i was like freaking word bet we're going let's go do that so i go down to la posta de messia and i'm telling you guys i told you this is going to be a little bit travelogue style no we're not into the real adventures yet we're just into the basically the traveling part of the adventure getting down there this is just day one we're still just in day one and we're well past the commercial break which we're going to take as soon as i finish this part up this is just day one driving day La Posta de Messia. I love history, and you guys know this about me. It was a trading post established in 18, what was it, 40, 38? It was the 1840s, for sure. Know that much. And it later became a Butterfield Stagecoach stop. Any of you guys that know history even a little bit have heard of the old Butterfield Stage from St. Louis to San Francisco, and it ran all the way down through Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona. It's an amazing story, the Butterfield Overland Stage. Um, and this was a stop on the Butterfield, Butterfield route. Um, and then, later on, it was purchased in 1939 by a young lady who decided she wanted to open a restaurant for all of her friends and family, and it became this La Posta de Messia. And to, according to them, at least, the recipes they use today are the recipes that she started using in 1939 until her death in 1993, I believe, before it was sold to one of her nieces to keep it in La, Femi- La Familia. Um, they say that she uses, they still use the same recipes that she used 80 years ago, and that she got from her family's descendants. And let me tell you something, guys. They have multiple different kinds of food. But they're authentic Mexican food. 
They call it New Mexican food. So we're going to go with that. Their authentic New Mexican food is incredible, y'all. I had an enchilada that they serve. Now, I, I like to consider myself a step above an uncultured swine, right? I like to consider that I'm at least a cultured swine, a somewhat reasonably cultured swine. I'd never heard of this, but they serve the, their enchiladas pancake style. And they're not like a wrapped enchilada like we know them, kind of like a little burrito, you know, in shape and function. No, it's more like, it's more like, looks like a hamburger if you were to kind of pick it all apart. It's pancake style is what they call it. Whatever that means, it, it, it tastes wondrous, okay? Whatever it means, it is incredible. And I know that I can be prone to a, I don't want to say sensationalism, because to me, if you're hearing me talking about it, and I'm really excited about it. It's because it was sensational to me because it stood out above other things. What you don't understand is I don't tell you guys everything. You know what I mean? It's like your mama telling you, it's like, I don't, you don't know everything about me. Your kid, you think you know everything about your parents and you find out they're like a freaking spy or something. It's like, I don't tell you everything. Okay. I don't tell y'all everything for every time I'm freaking out about how awesome something is. There's a hundred times I ain't told you about that. It was crap. You know what I mean? That's just life, right? So don't let my sensationalistic views of things desensitize you to how awesome something is. Oh, that's just Justin. He always says it's awesome. No, if I'm saying it, it's because it truly is awesome. That enchilada was freaking incredible. One of the best ones I've ever had. I mean, comparing it to the one I had in Santa Cruz three years ago that literally still stands as the king or did until now. It's the best freaking enchilada I'd ever had. This one definitely vies for it. They, they're going to cage match over which one's better. And I'm not sure who would win because it was awesome. Point of the story is if you go to Las Cruces, make sure and go check out old Mesilla because the town itself is freaking gorgeous. Pueblo style buildings, Adobe style buildings everywhere. Most of them are from the area. Y'all this building that La Posta de Mesilla is in is freaking 160, 70, 80 years old, whatever. 1840 to 2020, 180 years old. The building the bones. It's how old it is. It's an old, old town, southwestern town. It's a really awesome place. And to boot, it's gorgeous inside. They have piranha in there. They have a freaking piranha in there. By the way, they have a freaking piranha in a fish tank in there. And also parrots. Parrots that are very loud and screech at you if you look at them funny. So I suggest not mean mugging the parrot if you go. But anyway, around it, awesome food in a super historical setting and a really, really cool historical little town, La Posta de Mesilla. I think I've said that a hundred times now. So you're definitely not going to forget it. They deserve a shot at your business because it was just really, really good food. Anyway, now that we've pushed 45 minutes for day one of the travel day, I suppose we should probably take our commercial break. So we're going to cut here. We're going to get a short commercial from our sponsor and then we'll be right back to, uh, you know what? We're going to have to see if we actually finish tonight, we may have to make this a two-parter. I'm not sure. Day, day one took a while. We're going to find out. We'll see. Or it might just be an extravagance. I do that sometimes. Oh, by the way, guys, here's a two-hour episode. I don't know. We'll find out when we come back from the break. What is up, all of you wayward souls? I want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor, Bendetti Optics a brand based right here in the good old U.S. of A., Portland, Oregon, to be exact. And I bought my first pair of Bendetti sunglasses about a year and a half ago and fell in love with them so much so that I got online and ordered a couple of more pair. And when I did, there was a small shipping snafu, 
an order fulfillment snafu. And I got on the phone, gave him a call. And guess what? I get a call back from who? One of the big men themselves right there in Portland from the top of the chain, have a great conversation. And we end up starting this great relationship. We have They more than made right the little snafu that occurred. And I am now a huge proponent of them because I can tell you from personal experience, they are good people and they're trying to compete with the big boys out there coming in at a price point of about $40, but using the exact same frame material TR 90 and the same polarization process as the big guys. As it turns out something, I think we are already probably new in our hearts. When you buy big name sunglasses, you're buying a big name, not necessarily any more quality than you can get somewhere else. Like at Ben Daddy Optics, they have 29 different styles. They have multiple polarization options for whatever climate you happen to live in. And they back it up with like this lifetime guarantee that if your dog eats your sunglasses, it doesn't matter how you break them, send it back in with a check to cover shipping and handling and you're golden. You got a new pair on the way. These guys are truly trying to do it right. And they have this philosophy that a really good pair of sunglasses should not cost you so much that you are afraid to wear them. And I think all of us outdoorsmen can relate to that. So if you guys like me are very practical and like to get more bang for your buck and wear some great looking sunglasses, check out BendettiOptics.com. That's B-E-N-D-E-T-T-I Optics.com. Or you can go over to Instagram slash Optics. And that I highly suggest whether you buy a pair or not, just to check out the cutest pupper you will ever see modeling sunglasses. Once again, that's BendettiOptics.com. And make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sticking around through the sponsor break. If you get the chance, go and support those sponsors. Make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you over there. Because supporting them supports the show, guys. It helps keep the show free. So we don't have to do like paywall stuff because it costs a lot of money to make these shows. Trust me, on a yearly basis, hosting, all the things that are involved, it, it does cost money to do this. Um, So go and support them. And that's a great way. Second to actually liking, sharing, subscribing, um, reviewing, doing all those kinds of things with the show and the links here on YouTube or on the podcast player of your choice. Those are like the biggest things to support the show. I'm always willing to uh, give you guys all the awesome vibes I have to give to anyone out there who's willing to take a second and support us in that way. But anyway, around it, let's get back into the show. I think I have made an executive decision during our commercial break there while I was refreshing myself. Um, and I think this is going to end up being a two-parter um, because we ran into 45 minutes or whatever before we even took the break. I think I'm going to tell you guys about day three. Thanksgiving day and, you know, all the way to my Thanksgiving lunch and dinner. Um, and then we're probably going to come back with a different episode. We're going to come back with a part two for all of day four, because day four was freaking awesome, quite eventful in its own right. And it's going to be a two and a half hour long episode if I don't find a place to split it. So that's where we're going to split it. I'm going to tell you up through Thanksgiving dinner and then have you guys leave you with a little cliffhanger to come back next week, because I promise you, you will want to hear the episode after this one, because day four, day four had by far the most awesome, awesome portion of this trip. There were a lot of great things, and you're hearing about some really good ones tonight, but the most adventurous of the adventures I got to take in a very special set of uh, natural circumstances that I had no control over. Um, that will be next week. So you'll definitely want to come back for that. So let's get into day three for the rest of tonight, for the rest of tonight's show. Let's get into day three. Um, Day three dawned with me making a 
dead run for the Gila Cliff Dwellings. Um, National Monument. Gila Cliff Dwellings are basically, you guys have seen the Cliff Dwellers. Everyone at some point in their lives in a history class somewhere have seen some picture of a Cliff Dwelling in the Southwest. For most people, they've seen from the ancient Puebloan cultures, um, the Anasazi, things like that. That's mostly what you see. Um, the Mughalan culture is a little bit, again, lesser known, but they absolutely had some cliff, cliff dwellings for literally like a 20 to 30 year window. This is what's crazy to me. This is what's crazy to me is this, this set of cliff dwellings was only built and occupied for about 30 years before this particular culture of people moved on from it. But they are really, really impressive cliff dwellings and they're gorgeous. And the setting that they're in is freaking gorgeous. Everyone needs to go check out the Gila Cliff Dwellings National Monument. Y'all, I've told you before, I'm a huge proponent of our national park system. I know some of you aren't. I've had some very lively and spirited discussions with some of you about it. Um, a lot of you guys feel like you're banned from certain things or the national parks in some way, shape or form conspiratorially is bad. According to some people, I will disagree with that all day long. Part of that is because I am a studying anthropologist. I am working my way towards possibly working with the National Park Service because I believe in their mission. And you know what? I'm going to tell you a quick story of why I believe in the national parks. Here's the thing. When you're governing 300 plus million people, you can't ever make everyone happy. You know, the people that don't like the national parks, the Bureau of Land Management, things like that are like, well, they put bars on all the caves and I want to go climb in caves. Yeah, okay, I get that because I'm a big personal liberty guy. I'm a big personal liberty guy. Here's the thing, though. You have to put restrictions in place and things in place to protect certain things that are super duper special, okay? Perfect example, when I was at the Three Rivers Petroglyphs site, which is not a national parks administered park. It is administered by, I believe it's just the state of New Mexico. I'm not going to quote it. The information's elsewhere, whatever. I'm not going to take the time to do that. You can go look it up and find out for yourself. But I believe it's just the state of New Mexico. And I mean, who knows? Maybe it is Bureau of Land Management. But point is, is there's not like a ton of security. There's not a ton of rangers roaming around. Um, doing their thing, whatever, you know, it's really just open to the public. It's not nearly as protected as a national park type site is going to be. And what I witnessed when I was there was about a probably four-year-old to five-year-old girl with her family, a large family of them, using a rock to scratch all over a freaking 700 to a 1500, 1600 year old piece of American culture, literally a window into the past, into a people that no longer exist. And we're not even sure about their descendants. To be honest, they kind of came from very mysterious beginnings. And we don't know there's three or four ideas of where they might've come from, originated from their Genesis. And there's not any provably known links to any modern indigenous peoples. There are some that claim it and there are some theories about it, but it's like, it's, it's kind of ambiguous. Okay. They're, they're kind of a very, very mysterious blip on our radar. It's a very important thing to protect their stuff that they left around. And I've got a five-year-old over here next to me with a rock trying to dig her name on the face of a freaking, you know, big horn sheep that was literally etched in by someone 1600 years ago. The only form of writing they had that we know of 
and the way that they express themselves and, and, and express their culture and probably religion in these rocks. And I got a five-year-old over here scratching onto the surface of these rocks. That's why I'm a big proponent of the National Park Service, because this is not the only time I have ever witnessed with my own eyes something absolutely amazing being destroyed by, you know, people. Okay? I'm not bashing on a five-year-old. She's a sweet little girl. She ain't know no better. My five-year-old would have done that when she was five. My daughter would have done that when she was five. But her parents sure weren't stopping her. No one was stepping in to say, yo, hey, don't do that, girl. Like, we need protection for our really, really important sites. So I am pro-national parks and, like, freaking always will be. Unless they, like, change course and do something just absolutely obscene and unheard of. Like, big time pro-national parks. But anyway... When you go up into these places, go and check out all of the things that we preserved because there's a rhyme and a reason to it. Why did I go to the Gila cliff dwellings? Because they're freaking cliff dwellings way up on the side of a mountain. And it's just mind blowing guys to go and see for yourself. Can you imagine living like that? And that's what you get to do. You go explore the place and you get to kind of imagine living like that because you stand in the footsteps and stand inside the walls of the places that they called home. So anyway, day three was mostly going to be dedicated to the Gila cliff dwellings, but became an even larger adventure on the backside of that. And we're about to get into it, but to go to the Gila cliff dwellings, that alone is an interesting and beautiful journey in its own right. Okay. When you go from Las Cruces and you head West it's about a three-hour drive to the Gila Cliff Dwellings, and the mileage doesn't match up to that. A lot of that's because it's a pretty damn slow drive. Why is it a slow drive? Because you were driving through the Black Range of the Upper Sierra Madre Mountains, and it is very windy, but absolutely gorgeous. Y'all, I those views so reminiscent of when I was in Colorado near Buena Vista in so many ways, but still their own thing still unique to them and still their own thing. Absolutely gorgeous views, y'all. And you want to talk about some vistas, go over to my Instagram, waywardson119. Go over to our website, waywardstories.com and find my Instagram page. And you'll get an idea of how beautiful these mountains are. These vistas though, y'all, the pictures, I've still got to post some of them, y'all. I've got weeks worth of work to go through all the pictures and videos that I took. But up in these mountains, some of this, okay, one thing, you're on a giant volcano. For a good portion of this, you're on a giant, ancient, ancient volcano. I think I remember in the literature like 30 million years old or whatever, 30 million years ago, this big thing happened. You're in a caldera. The whole damn place is a caldera. Maybe you guys have heard of the caldera around Yellowstone, Yellowstone National Park. Basically, the whole damn park in an even bigger section than that. It's like really a giant super volcano. And it's actually inactive. You know, old, you know the geysers and all of those things, Old Faithful, all the hot springs, the mineral springs, the sulfur springs, all that stuff, you know, it's because it's an active volcano. You know, the ground swells and retracts every year by a few millimeters. It's insanity. It's absolute insanity. Well, this little area in southern New Mexico, it's an ancient, ancient volcano. It is a caldera in its own right. And you're standing on top of this mountain peak and you realize I am standing on the edge of the cinder cone of a giant volcano. And this whole area is a whole damn caldera. And, and you're looking and they'll have signage. You know, we got to one overlook and I stand up on that overlook and I'm looking down who knows how many thousands of feet to the valley below. Looking at the, what was I looking at? Was that the Gila River? The Gila River's up there. 
but I don't know that that particular one was. It might have been Copperas Creek, Copperas Creek. Anyway, around it, you're looking thousands of feet down into this gorgeous valley, just absolutely gorgeous valley. And it's got like, there's a sign in front of you and it's got the same picture from exactly where you're standing. And there's an arrow pointing and it's like, this is the volcano. And this is what it was like when this went off. And here's where all the things you can see and you're looking around and you're looking at, you are here and you're like, yeah, I'm just right on top of volcano. Thank God it's extinct. I hope. Right. Y'all the geography or the geology rather. I'm sorry. It's getting late. It's been a long weekend. It's getting late. I got work tomorrow and my brain's already frizzled. But the geology of the area is absolutely breathtaking. It's absolutely gorgeous. The drive up. Oh my gosh. You're going through very, very high desert. After you get out of the high desert, you roll into some kind of high plains areas that are more rolling hills that start to become the mountains. And once you really hit into those mountains, the old growth forest, the huge, huge pine trees, y'all, the, the forest floor was so clear. These are my favorite kinds of forest. We've talked about this in other episodes. We talked about it, I think, back in the Sacred Places episode that's almost a year old now, back around last uh, December 25th, back around last Christmas. Old growth forest with their super, super tall canopies, and they choke out all of the undergrowth because there's no sunlight that reaches the floor. So you have like these almost like fields of open, you could just walk through them without having to, like here in Arkansas, you're hacking through underbrush and brambles and briars, as they say, up there. They're not up there anywhere, but this was one of them. You get into these old growth forests and you just have the absolute most beautiful landscape you can see. You can see forever through these forests. You can just walk freely through the forest floor with the canopy hundreds of feet above you. Y'all, that is so, so special. The light play, the way the sunlight comes through keyholes with, you know, little breaks in the canopy. There's, oh my gosh, oh my God, it is sacred. It's a sacred place. It's the kind of place that will make you take stock of, I don't know, everything inside of you. It'll make you feel like there's more to the world than just you. It's one of those things, kind of like the ocean, that makes you feel really, really tiny. But instead of it being a bad thing, somehow that's a good thing because it almost makes you recognize your place within it all. That's that's what old growth forests like this can be like. And that mountain, the Black Range, is filled with those. As you drive up, there's a million places, guys, to pull off and take these photos of these dramatic, dramatic canyons that are lined out below you in all different directions. The clouds, you've got a viewpoint. You're in the high desert. You're standing on ground 7,000 feet high, right? You're up there in the atmosphere. And the mountains that rise even further above you, they create their own environments. They really are. They have their own thing going on up there. And the atmosphere interacts with them. And you've got the the winds coming in from California and Arizona and all of these things pushing across the continent, coming up over these mountains, dropping down into the basins. And it creates these atmospheric effects, y'all. It's kind of like, I kept saying this. While I was out there, I was like, this feels like being back in San Francisco. One of the things I said about those three months I spent in San Francisco is it's always magic hour. You guys know we've talked about magic hour. Magic hour, golden hour in film, in video, in television, in um, 
And in photography, it's that last hour to an hour and a half before sunset when the atmospheric conditions are just right and the sun is filtering through the atmosphere at an angle and everything becomes golden and it gets that golden glow, hence the golden hour or magic hour, because in film it's like that's when you get the shots that are cash money. Those are the magic moments in film, always shot at magic hour, right? So everything out there looked like that all the time in San Francisco. This had the same vibe, y'all. This had the same vibe. I don't know if it was humidity that high up into the atmosphere at 6,000, 5, 6, 7,000 feet. We're all over the place in these basins and up on the mountains, right? Something about it. Everything was a money shot. Every picture you took, the pictures took themselves. You weren't up there taking pictures. You were taking postcards, baby. Like it was cash money for photography. Every vista was looking out over these broad expanses with these awesome clouds stretching out as far as you can see you want to talk about perspective being able to put perspective in a shot you're trying to get you know a little bit of foreground of some awesome bush or some tree in front of you juniper tree or what the hell ever and down there that you're looking at there's so many things to pick from cactuses junipers this that the other but like right beyond it it drops 14 freaking hundred feet to a valley below that goes into another valley that goes into a vast expanse of the basin to the west, the Tularosa Basin or whatever. Is that going to be Tularosa right there? No, that's on the other side of the next mountain range. But the basin right there that you're looking at, off into the distance to another set of mountains starting to peek up over the horizon and you've got this cloud you know, these, these clouds that are stretched out across the sky. You want to talk about perspective. You want to talk about taking a cinematic photograph, baby. If you like photography, this is going to be a trip for you to take. I promise you that. But you work your way on up. You get past all these photographic opportunities. And for us, for me, man, I come up on freaking snow showers start happening and it got awesome. You're sitting on one vista looking out over this valley and in the valley there's like a freaking snow squall happening like i mean it's just like the bottom dropped out it's just like a freaking pop-up thunder shower down here in the in the plains of oklahoma and arkansas there they're just pop-up snow showers that's god the high desert baby the high desert is so awesome this thing is just pouring snow just a mile or two from you straight across you're just looking right at the damn cloud that's dropping the snow because you're just as high as it is then you get on up, or I get on up to the Gila Cliff Dwellings, and it's snowing up there too, baby. Like, it's snowing. The hike up to the Cliff Dwellings was just absolutely incredible. Like, you're hiking through this valley. You're along this little creek. they got a lot of bridges built, kind of a catwalk or boardwalk type of thing that has to happen in a few places. And you're just walking through this narrow little valley, and you're looking straight up at this huge outcropping that shoots straight up above you. Who knows how far? 800 feet, 1,000 feet, I don't know. And then you got to start the climb up. And it's a lot of steps up. Yo, it's an easy hike. It's well-maintained. It's a national monument, right? It's well-maintained. It's an easy enough hike to get up there. But you get up there and, you know, you're at five, six, seven thousand 7,000 feet. I don't remember the altitude of that particular area. But you're up six, seven thousand 7,000 feet. Easy. It's already a little bit hard to breathe. When you're acclimated to 402 feet above sea level here in the freaking Arkansas River Valley of Arkansas, just like two days before, right? It gets a little hard to breathe and you're huffing, baby, because you're climbing. I mean, you are climbing. It isn't as bad as being over 13,000 feet in Colorado going up Mount Sherman. That was brutal. Thought I was going to die back then. This wasn't that bad, but it'll put a workout on you. But suddenly you come around this bend and in the distance you see 
that, okay, I'm up now. I'm quite a ways up the wall. I'm looking down in the valley below. And, oh, look, right over there in the distance, there is a cliff dwelling built out of mud bricks, adobe bricks, right into the side of a huge natural cavern on the side of this freaking bluff face, which is nearly a sheer drop. And you get over and you realize that they access these through windows, that they made ladders that they had to climb through into basically windows. They don't really have full-size doors. They're like climbing in through windows, living in these shelters on the side of this bluff. And it's like, how? In your brain, it's like, A, the fact that they built this. Like, they use natural material, right? And red clay, or the clay of the area, the dirt, the clay. They used the water from the creek way down below. They had to carry all this stuff up here. And they had to construct this stuff right here in this cave, right on the edge of a drop-off. It strains credulity, almost. It's flabbergasting. It is ineffable. Let me see how many words I can pull out of my butt tonight. Y'all, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And it really puts you in another world, in another place. Like you're sitting there and you can look through the very same window that someone looked through 800 years ago, 700 years ago. This was around, oh, what was the time frame on these? It's around 1200. I believe it was 1270 to 1300, something like that. Just a tiny window of time that they were there, which is even more mind boggling. But 1270, 1300, we're talking 700 plus years ago, you know, give or take a little bit, give or take a decade, right? Um, but you're looking through this window, but your hands on, on the corner of it, you know, and you're like somebody else's hands, probably little children's hands from that time or right here on this same window sill, sill, so to speak, whatever you call it, but just the bottom of the window looking out over this valley looking down through all the, the forest and on the forest, and you've got snow coming in, falling out of the clouds that are basically not much higher than you are already at. I mean, you're at the source of the snow falling, baby. It's a whole thing. It's like a whole moment that you're living. And for a minute, you can almost put yourself there. You can almost see the hearth in the corner and the fire blazing. And, and whoever over here, your indigenous mother making up the dinner, you know, and cooking all the, the corn cobs, all the maize that they consume. Y'all, if your imagination, if you, if you are prone to imagination and you are a history nerd like me, when you put your feet in the same place as a culture like that, and you know that over 700 years ago, there were humans not that much different than you. That's something that's a big misconception. People, a lot of people in today's world think of the ancient peoples all over the world as like being stupid, like they were ignorant. They didn't understand things. Oh, but they believed in weird gods and they believed in this. Y'all, they were just as sophisticated as us. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I would take the average person from any one of those ancient cultures and, and put you up against them. A lot of people in today's world, because without your phone and without Wi-Fi, you're basically dead in a year. U.S. government did a study on that some time ago. True story. Congressional study. And they kind of concluded that 90% of Americans would be dead within a year if we did get hit by a major EMP burst from like a sun flare. If we got a major sun flare, like the 18, what is it, 68 or 70? I think it was the 1868 event that occurred. Y'all, if we just lost everything all power communications, you know, we went, our cards wouldn't work. You couldn't buy food at the grocery store. Like, yeah, we got like a year and about 90% of y'all would be dead. 
don't be so arrogant to think that those people that knew how to live off the land, but also, also knew things that I can't even comprehend, like astrology. They could line up the freaking solstices, the calendars. I can't make a calendar. And you guys go figure out your own calendar based on the movements of the sun. I, I, I do it. I dare you to try send me the results. I want to see that you, if you're not like a math major, I'm willing to bet you could not figure out a calendar based on the movements of the moon, the sun, and the stars. You know, ancient people sure as hell did. They figured out how to, you know, navigate. They created the things that we base modern computers on. Okay, people back in the day weren't stupid, so get that out of your head. They were actually quite brilliant. They just did not have technology that was advanced to the point that we have today. You got to remember we're in a blip in human history. All of human history was the same damn way up until like the industrial revolution. Yeah, it kind of started a little bit before that. The Chinese came up with gunpowder several hundred years before that. Um, there were little things, but basically steam locomotion and the industrial revolution, we've got like a 150 year window where we went from literally riding horses and nothing else and walking everywhere to many microcomputers that we use to look at social media on in our pockets, but actually can do more complex computations than computers that the federal government had in 1950 that took up entire city blocks. That's actually a fact. Look it up if you don't believe me. The technology we have today is on the backs of extremely brilliant people, but most of us, you and I, are not those extremely brilliant people. Ancient peoples, extremely brilliant in multiple ways. Mind-boggling. Respect them. Show them respect. But anyway, when you go and stand in places like this, you get a taste for how smart they were. Wow, how brilliant is this architecture and this engineering feat that they have created 700 years ago out of mud bricks on the side of a cliff and it still stands 800 years later. Y'all, I've seen barns that people's grandparents built in 1930 that are nothing but a heap on the ground in the back 40. You know what I'm talking about? It's amazing to see what our predecessors on this continent, the indigenous peoples of this continent and the world over, but at Gila Cliff Dwellings, you're getting to see something right there in southern New Mexico that is absolutely amazing. And it's very easy to access because it is made accessible by the national parks and maintained as such. So you guys definitely need to check out the Gila Cliff Dwellings. It was a whole moment for me. Nerd that I am, it was a whole damn moment for me. And then I had my Thanksgiving. You know, a lot of people have their Thanksgiving dinner at lunchtime. You know, my Thanksgiving dinner was turkey sandwich with some mustard and a cool ranch doritos kicking it down the road trying to make my way over from gila cliff dwellings to another place to try to get something out of the rest of the day remember we had three hours to gila three hours back to las cruces so what am i gonna do in between before it gets dark you know i'm finishing up gila cliff dwellings around what was it maybe one o'clock 12 to 1 i think it was around one well, I've only got three hours of daylight. It's getting dark five o'clock, right? I got three hours of daylight. I should probably use them while I'm over here. Um, so there was more things that got to happen that day. One of them being, well, actually, you know what? Before we leave the Gila Cliff Dwellings, let me point out a couple of things that are interesting. There's some really amazing Apache history 
in the Gila Cliff Dwellings area. Um, the Apaches were like a northern tribe that kind of came down into New Mexico. As such, they're not descendants directly from the Muggle and people. But the Apaches came in at a pretty early date. Um, and anyway, many of you have heard of Geronimo. Kind of an important, kind of a super famous indigenous American figure. He was born at the headwaters of the Gila River, which are right there in the Gila National Monument area. And there's a whole lot of history about the Apaches and their resistance to being taken over by the government, both the U.S. and the Mexican um, governments who were all vying to try to subjugate them and push them off the lands that they ancestrally had forever. A lot of history up there, a lot to be learned about it. But I just thought it was super awesome that you're basically standing in the area where Geronimo himself was born. Anyway, when I leave the Gila Cliff Dwellings, I go off on a shot. And I'm like, okay, there was one way that we came up to go to the Gila Cliff Dwellings. But there's another way you can go down. So I went down the other way because it takes you through a whole other stretch of awesome forest and a whole other stretch of more freaking amazing pictures and vistas on tops of these damn mountains and on top of these ancient volcanoes looking down into the caldera and all of the awesome geology. Y'all, the pictures are incredible. But there's a couple of towns like Pinos Altos which is an old mining town. They've got a really cool little area. You just shoot off of the road on the way back down from Gila. You go through their town, take a little detour, and you're looking at ancient, you know, one of them's a theater from the 1860s. I think that's when it said it was established, the quote-unquote late 60s. Um, there's several little buildings there, and these are like really, really old mining towns, guys. These are people that came back from the California gold rush, the 49ers and stuff, and something would hit over in New Mexico or Arizona, and they'd all come flocking that way to the new biggest quote-unquote gold rush or silver strike. This part of New Mexico is awash in mining towns from those eras, that era, the 1800s into the early 1900s. Y'all, there's a lot to explore. There is a lot to explore when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I went back down, went through um, Pinos Altos, and then what the heck? What was next? Silver City. You make it on down to Silver City. Silver City is a big modern town now, but it's got an incredible historic district worth checking out. But at this point, you know, I had to make a decision. What I figured out was, hey, the thing that I had planned to do the whole trip, which was for sure try to get up to the Dripping Springs natural area where there's an abandoned resort and um, tuberculosis sanatorium up on the mountains from the late 1800s, just abandoned, waiting to be hiked to and explored. I wanted to get there by sunset on one of those days, and I figured out on this day it wasn't happening today. So, crap, what are we going to do now? We're going to have to push that till tomorrow or whatever. What are we going to do? So, I look and I find the Lake Valley Historic District on a map, on Google Maps, as a matter of fact, I think. I start looking into it. Oh, wow. That's an abandoned ghost town. That is an abandoned mining town. It's a ghost town that the Bureau of Land Management is working to um, reinforce the buildings and trying to protect it as a historical ghost town. And it's got some awesome buildings and some awesome history. I bet I can get there before sunset. But boy, I'm going to be pushing it. And there's two ways to go. And one of them looks like an awesome drive over a mountain pass. And the other one is, you know, around the base of the mountain. One of them was way further, but faster, believe it or not. It's like double the distance, but a 10 minutes faster. 
The other way was half the distance, but 10 minutes slower because it was a freaking incredible looking mountain pass. And of course, you know me, I was wanting that mountain pass. 10 minutes slower ain't no thing. That ain't going to make or break us. Well, I get to heading down there and suddenly realize, you know, start seeing as we come down into the valley and I'm looking over towards those mountains and I'm getting close to the junction I need to make that there is a freaking literally like a snow squall from hell on that mountain. And I mean, it is like zero visibility. The mountain top of the mountain's gone from halfway down up. And I start looking at the Google Maps and I start looking at all the windy roads and I start putting two to two and two together in my little wayward sun brain going, wait a second. This trip is this many miles and takes an hour and 40 minutes. All the way around the mountain is double the miles and takes an hour and 30 minutes. That probably tells me that that trip over the mountain pass is freaking insane. It's probably got switchbacks, extreme inclines. Now, while I trust little lady Clementine and her four-wheel drive Subaru capabilities, what I don't like is the idea of being blind in zero visibility in a freaking snow squall on a mountain road that's got switchbacks that's like 4,000 feet down a valley below. That I'm not so fond of. While I love adventure, I felt like the zero visibility aspect, I wasn't even as concerned about the snow. Real snow ain't that bad to drive in. It's ice that sucks. But it was that zero visibility aspect that had me concerned. So I made the executive decision to not make that drive over. And in the end, when we got back around the other side to Lake Valley, looking back up at the top of that mountain, I was like, God damn, that was a good idea. That was a really good idea. I made the right decision as much as it made me sick. Cause I was like, there's an adventure up there waiting go across that mountain in freaking zero visibility snowstorm. Boy, how about a story to tell on the podcast? But then I was like, yeah, but what if you don't make another episode of the podcast? Cause you died, right? Zero visibility is a bad thing in most situations. So I made the adult decision to come home to my daughter, um, alive instead of in a bag. So come around and this is, it got exciting because I suddenly was like realizing, cause I stopped, man, y'all, you have to stop for the pictures. There's pictures everywhere. Ended up down in this little valley, just off the edge, coming off the mountain. And I come into this little valley and there's just this meadow of all the, you know, like chest high, freaking like prairie grass style grass, that wheat colored style grass. Y'all, the sun setting over the mountains, the light play was incredible. And it's freaking snowing like crazy everywhere all around me. So I stopped to take pictures of that because it was one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen in taking one of those pictures. I got something that I have no idea how this was even possible, but it happened. I took a handful of pictures and in one of them and just thank God, I don't even know y'all I'm a photographer. I'm not a super professional photographer, but I've been at it for several years and I was in film and video production for several years. I understand what it takes to get, you know, you know, when you get into apertures and lighting and frame rates and all the different things, somehow I got a picture of a freaking snowflake, a big fat snowflake broadside to the camera in flight where you can see its crystalline structure, just like you put a freaking snowflake in front of a damn microscope. You guys have all seen a picture of what a snowflake really looks like, right? Well, I took a picture, a freaking open air picture in the snow and the way the light was coming through, I don't know. I don't know, guys. This is like got to be a one in a million thing. Go over to my Instagram and check it out because that's already up and it's mind blowing. But I got this awesome, gorgeous scene and just happened to get an actual snowflake in flight and see it. And y'all, there were 
big, big, big snowflakes. This thing is huge coming into the top of the camera. It's mind boggling. You need to go check it out. But so I'm stopping and because you have to, these pictures are incredible. You can't miss these pictures because these pictures are what help you come back to this place and remind yourself of that adventure you were on. So suddenly I realize I'm racing sunset big time to get to the Lake Valley Historic District. So I am flying down around the base of this mountain, back up into the valley and just kicking it as hard as I can towards Lake Valley. And let me tell you guys something. That little race against the sun was awesome. That sunset coming across that valley, across that wheat grass, wheat style grass, that upper high plains prairie grass with the snow everywhere and snow clouds in the distance and snow on top of all the damn mountain peaks in every direction you looked. Y'all, it was a it was a alien world that I was racing through on the way to this Lake Valley Historic District. It was an alien world. It was another world. The world of 1850s and 1860s and 1870s America where prospectors and gold miners and silver miners and the, the ranchers, farmers, the pioneers, the ancient indigenous peoples, well, not ancient, not in the 1870s, but the indigenous peoples, it's the places that they lived in the high deserts, up in the mountains. And it was absolutely, absolutely otherworldly and an incredible experience. It was so beautiful, man. I took a bunch of pictures, took a bunch of pictures. You need to go over there and see them. But you get out to the Lake Valley Historic District, totally an adventure you need to go on, y'all. You drive right up to it. It's administered by the BLM. You get out and walk around. It's a self-guided walking tour. There are little things right at the beginning of the trail that you can pick up, little maps, and, you know, kind of it's a self-guided tour deal. And it can walk you all the way through there. And they've got a restored and reinforced the old school building, and they're slowly working their way through some, the few other buildings that are left in town. There are abandoned mines all over the side of the mountain. There's abandoned equipment here and there and yonder and everywhere you look. And it is. It's going back 150 years into the past, y'all. You step through the freaking portal into that time machine and you're 150 years in the past looking at these buildings and you can just put yourself there. You can put yourself in those shoes. One of my favorite things in this world to do is explore the abandoned mining camps of the mountains, the Rocky mountains, the Sierra Madre mountains of the West. Y'all the American West is an incredible, incredible place. It doesn't matter if it's the American Southwest, the Northwest, the regular West, the middle West, the western half of the United States of America is an absolutely just, it's an alien landscape to the rest of us that live from <laughs> essentially the breadbasket of America. You run down through the Dakotas and Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma and Texas from there to the east. Yeah, we have a lot of beautiful stuff. We absolutely do. The Ozarks, the Washita's, the Appalachians, that you name it. Blue Ridge Mountains, we got all these things, but they hit different. It's different. It's different. The West is unique. The West is freaking special. The West is freaking special, y'all, and I absolutely love it. That Lake Valley Historic District is a great, great trip to take and explore. And they've even got, it's on what they call um, a backcountry byway. And it's a federal thing. It's a Bureau of Land Management thing. They call them backcountry byways. And this was a new one for me tonight 
They're on the western half of the United States. You know, we've known about scenic byways. Like, we got Talamina Scenic Drive and stuff. We know, you know, the Natchez Trace Scenic Parkway. Like, we know about scenic byways. But backcountry byways, and they are different levels, y'all. They're at one, you know, level one is paved. Level two is need a four-wheel drive. Level three is, you know, kiss your, <laughs> put your head between your legs and kiss your butt goodbye kind of stuff. Or level four, I think, rather. It's all ATV, OHV only, and they're backcountry byways. And that's fascinating, and I can't wait to learn more about those and get out and adventure on some of those in the future. I promise you I'm putting that on the old bucket list because there's a buttload of them out there in the West. You want to talk about the best way to find abandoned infrastructure for mines and for mining camps and old railroads. Oh, that's going to be awesome. I am super excited about that. But anyway, anyway, we need to wrap up tonight's show. That was day three. So we've got day one through three in tonight's show. And I finished day three, Thanksgiving day of my adventure by heading back into Las Cruces um, to, to basically call it a night, get reset, go through all the pictures, try to do a little preliminary work on the pictures and notes for these podcasts and stuff. But I had not have dinner, right? I haven't eaten except for that turkey sandwich and Doritos and a handful of tiny three musketeers. I don't eat well. By the way, I don't know how to feed myself like an adult. I, it, it just is what it is. But anyway, it's like, we gotta have dinner, gotta eat. Get to looking around, of course, it's Thanksgiving day. You know, nothing's open. I mean, gosh, back in the day, there were a lot of like fast food chains would open up again that night, six, seven o'clock. Nothing was open except Whataburger and that line was out the door. So, you know, I went back into my, my past. I remembered the wisdom of things I've learned in the past and I remembered what Tim Allen said on the Santa Claus so long ago, Denny's, it's always open. And you know what? It was. And my Thanksgiving dinner was chicken fried chicken with a whole buttload of white gravy and mashed potatoes. And it was an awesome Thanksgiving dinner in the middle of a foreign land to me on an amazing adventure. And y'all, that is just, that's the best way I could think to have spent my Thanksgiving day. Absolutely. For me, I am an unorthodox person and I enjoy doing things that are not necessarily traditional. So just if any of y'all are out there like me, the unorthodox people, the non-trads, the black sheep, the weirdos, don't feel bad because you've got at least one ally over here. You're not the only one in the world. Don't think you're the only person that likes things weird. Let's make it weird. Anyway, that's going to wrap up tonight's show, guys. Thank you for listening to this freaking hour and a half long show. Um, I hope you'll come back for the next episode. Trust me, it's going to be worth it. You're going to want to hear about that abandoned ter- tuberculosis asylum, the Van Patten camp, the abandoned resort up on the side of the Oregon mountains. Y'all, there's a lot white sands. There's a lot in the next episode. So make sure and come back. If you guys like what you're listening to, and you want to support the show and help us to keep making it, make sure and like and subscribe. Make sure and leave reviews on the podcast player of your choice. And what we found recently is making a huge impression out there. If you come across an episode that you particularly like and you think, yo, that will fit right into my blah, blah, blah group on Facebook. They would love to hear about this. Share it. Click that share button and put it in there, man. We get huge, huge spikes when people do that. It's super helpful. If you guys want to do that, you feel free and you will have my eternal gratitude. Um, For tonight, we're going to wrap it up. Guys, I've enjoyed having you here. I look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks. Until we do, you guys stay safe out there. Get out. Be weird. Find some life to live. And uh, don't forget to be good to each other. 